Good morning. It's so good to be with you, as as Pastor just said. My name is Daryl Ford, and the pastor of Icon Community Church. We planted about eight years ago uh, this September, and one of the things that every church is endeavoring to do is to see Jesus, to know who Jesus really is. Um, not necessarily who we've remade him to be, but who he truly is. And as I was preparing uh, this, this sermon, I thought about something that has been, uh, something that always tickled me. There's a professor named Scott McKnight. He teaches up at North Park Seminary in Chicago. And every class, when he's teaching a certain class, he, he ends up asking the same question to all of his students. He asks them, who is, what is Jesus like? Just a, a really simple question. What is Jesus like? What, what do you think Jesus is like? Is he, is he moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of the party or is he an introvert? It's about 24 questions, and at the end of those 24 questions, a second set follows with slightly changed language. And the question is, what are you like? And what they found invariably is more often than not, the ways in which you describe yourself, you superimpose that onto Jesus. You just assume, because I see it this way, he must see it this way. Because I feel this way, he must feel this way. Now, now, Scott McKnight's not the only person to administer this exam. Several teachers uh, give this type of exam, and other professionals have done the same, and the results are incredibly consistent. Everybody thinks Jesus is just like them. This is what Professor McKnight says. He says, the test results also suggest that even though we like to think we're becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try to make Jesus like ourselves. This confer, uh, confirms what the French philosopher Voltaire uh, said centuries ago. If God has made us in his image, we have returned the favor. Now, this isn't a contemporary problem. This was the case about 200 years ago. One of the authors of our nation's Declaration of Independence, also our third president, Thomas Jefferson, wrote a 46-page booklet called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It has affectionately come to be known as Jefferson's Bible. If you don't know, a lot of our founding fathers, we love to say Christian nation, a bunch of Christians, actually not the case. A lot of deists, maybe, uh, in some cases, not no faith at all. And the ones that happen to be even followers, roughly, of Jesus or Christianized, because they were from the Enlightenment, they had such a hard time accepting some of the more supernatural aspects of Jesus. They just struggled with that. They liked the love and the grace and the joy and, and the respect and all of those things. They loved that. They thought that was great. They thought that made people good citizens. But this idea that Jesus was something other than a man, that was, that was a stretch. And so Thomas Jefferson preferred a Jesus that was exclusively a moral savior, a moral leader. So what did he do? He took a pair of scissors and he started cutting through his Bible and removed all of the verses that referred to Christ's deity. Anything referring to Jesus as God, anything referring to Jesus as a miracle worker, anything in reference to his resurrection. As a matter of fact, Jefferson's Bible ended with the stone being rolled over the tomb, the end. That was a Jesus that he could prefer. 
It's not a shock, as we said. Many of our founding fathers and educated citizens in the new world rejected the miraculous occurrences and rejected some of the prophecies. They embraced the idea of a well-ordered universe created by a God who withdrew into detached transcendence. You've got a God that creates things, but he's not in the midst of it. He's, he's, he's given us rules, but he's not in the midst of our lives. He doesn't necessarily engage you there. One of the things I love about what Pastor just said as we were praying, we love the fact that God invites us to come as we are. God loves you enough to meet you exactly where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. So this is the, the way that the, the, the early founding fathers, like Jefferson, viewed Jesus. Listen to how he said it. Jefferson wrote in a letter to John Adams, who was very uh, overt about his faith, by the way. He writes a letter to John Adams, and he said, this wee little book of 46 pages was based on a lifetime of inquiry and reflection and contained, and quote, the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. Now, this is in some ways similar to uh, what psychologists refer to as kind of a Rorschach test. You guys ever heard of the ink block test? So you go in and you see like it's just a bunch of ink on a page and you basically kind of say, this is what I see, what do you see, what things, and typically it's almost indicative of what's happening internally. And so you begin to kind of impose whatever your own propensities are, whatever your predilections are, whatever your proclivities are, you put them onto the painting and go, I see that. We have often turned Jesus into our own inkblot test. We, we have. We look at Jesus and we see the things that make sense and then the things that don't make sense, we remake them to look like us, so now it makes sense. This has been the case oftentimes with so many ways in which we approach Jesus. We give him our personality. We give him our values. We give him our biases. We custom fit him to ourselves, and then we worship that image. That's what we do with Jesus. That's our, that's our, that's our nature. That's how we're bent and so the, the text that I want us to look at today, I think, characterizes this. I want to talk about a character that you often don't mention, we don't often study, we don't spend a lot of time. He typically is treated on the periphery of the bigger story, which makes sense. I want to talk to you about a man named Barabbas. Because I think we do what I believe the Jews at the time were doing with Barabbas. The case of Barabbas epitomizes this, and I think this may stretch you. Because what we're going to go to, it isn't the main point of the story, but it's a huge part of the story. So three things I want you to see here. I want you to see, number one, we still want Barabbas. Number two, we are Barabbas. And number three, Jesus died for Barabbas. So we're going to go into Matthew 27. I just want to read it really quickly, walk through Matthew 27 and Take a look at this passage. Again, you're probably familiar with it, but want us to stretch a little bit. Want us to dig a little bit deep into this text and figure out what is it that we're supposed to get from this, right? This is profitable for reproof and correction. So what needs to be changed in the way we view Jesus? Let's take a look here. Matthew 27, verses 15 through 25. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, 
who was called Christ. For he knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus, who was called Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. So by way of synopsis, what do we see here? Here we are, Matthew 27. We've got this situation where the Roman governor, Pilate, is questioning Jesus. We know that. We've seen this story. Several movies will uh, kind of recapitulate the details of this story. Pilate finds no fault. Pilate doesn't want to be responsible for sentencing Christ, this innocent man. He doesn't want to be responsible. He doesn't want that death to be on his hands. Apparently, there was a custom of releasing one prisoner selected by the Jewish crowds every year during that feast of Passover. So Pilate gave the Jewish community a choice, gave them this choice on who should be released, Jesus or this prisoner named Barabbas. I just want you to to look at this because I believe that the same decision that was before the Jews then is the same decision that is ever present before us now. We are always in a situation where we have to determine, what do I want? Do I want Jesus or do I want Barabbas? And a deeper look into this, into who Barabbas actually was, I'm thoroughly convinced that I, and most likely you, still want Barabbas. So who was he? This is a hard question because Barabbas is very briefly mentioned in the text Again, kind of a passing detail as you go through the text. And so we quickly go to the bigger part of the story, and we miss a very key detail, I believe. I mean, what we know, number one, is Barabbas likely was not his first name. Barabbas wasn't his first name. Barabbas is an Aramaic patronym that uh, is very simple. Most patronyms were called patronyms, pater in the Latin, for father. Your name was related to who your father was. So you know that many times you would see uh, Peter, right? Peter was known as Peter Bar Jonah, Peter, son of Jonah. Today we call him Peter Johnson, little Petey, because that's what bar anything meant. So you've got some first name and then Bar Abbas, Bar Abba, son of the father. That's, that's odd. That's odd because typically, number one, whenever you released a name or whenever you recorded a name, you'd give the full name. This is a very generic name. Most names are very specific. Peter Johnson, that's a very key thing, but son of someone specific. This is just son of the father, son of a father. It wasn't enough to know who you were. It was important that people know whose you were. 
And here, you don't really get that. You don't know what it is. Now, scholars think that either A, whoever this, we'll get to the first name in a minute, but whoever this was, either was the son of a rabbi, Abba is another word for father. They would often refer to Rabboni, Rab Abba, this, this idea of a spiritual leader, father person. Maybe Barabbas, whoever his first name was, maybe his dad was a rabbi. We don't know. It's a very generic name, and it's odd to be listed as his only name. In other words, he had to have a first name, and this is why it matters. Because if you read through some of the earliest manuscripts of Matthew 27, his first name is mentioned. Go back in some of the earliest, oldest manuscripts. Go back through the Greek, some of the earliest Greek manuscripts we have. It's very clear the name that's there, and it might surprise you, because his name was Jesus Barabbas. As a matter of fact, uh, you'll notice that several scholars, including a man by the name of D.A. Carson, puts it this way. On the whole, it was more likely that the scribes deleted the name Jesus from Jesus Barabbas out of reverence for Jesus the Christ, then added it in order to set a startling, if not grotesque, choice before the Jews. This was intentional. God has given you a startling side-by-side comparison. Jesus the Christ, Jesus, Son of God, Jesus, Son of the Father. If that don't preach by itself, I don't know what will. The biggest question is, which Jesus do you want? This is the question. It's not a, it's, it's easy to look at something that's so obviously different from another. It's easy to go, I want, I, I want this, not that. I want something red, not blue. I want something that's wet, not dry. It's easy to see easy opposites, things that are so opposite. You can, it, it doesn't take any work. I know I don't want that. But what if there are things that are like speciously similar? Then what do you do? How do you choose? Who do you choose? We've got this startling side-by-side comparison. Here's why I believe the Lord puts this here. Because he's wanting us to see that we all are struggling with two types of saviors. Every one of us. With at least two types of saviors. The reason why we know this is you have to dig a little bit deeper into who Barabbas was and what Barabbas, uh, what his goals were. So we know that the books of Mark, Luke, and Acts, they refer to Barabbas as a murderer. They use the word murderer. So we know that on some level, there, were, there was killing involved. John 18.40 calls him a robber. Now, the word for robber actually gives us a better picture of what type of group this Barabbas was a part of. Because the word that's used for robber comes from the same word from which the movement the zealots are. So so think about this. He's a part of the zealots. Who are the zealots? These were folks that were so fiercely religious and fiercely patriotic. Israel was no longer an actual nation at this time. They despised the Roman government because the Roman government said, basically, we're going to pacify you and let you have this kangaroo court. You won't have any real representation to us. You're not a real nation any longer. You can have all of your myths. You can have all of your legends. You can have all of your traditions. Just don't get in the way of paying taxes and don't stop the Roman government. So you had this group of folks who you can understand felt a degree of we want our independence. We just celebrate. Some folks just celebrated this last week, this 4th of July, the independence of this nation. These folks were waiting for this opportunity to make it more contextually appropriate, and hopefully it doesn't step on any toes, but if so, talk to your pastor. Um, these were folks that were ultimately mega folks, make Israel great again. 
They genuinely wanted to see the old guard restored. They wanted to see their flag again. They wanted to see, listen, we were God's people. We were the blessing to everybody in the earth, and now all of a sudden we've gone through being enslaved, overtaken. The Roman government is now just placating us. We don't get any real power or authority. We don't have a military. We didn't even get our own money. Whenever we go to the temple, we get to use our money. Then we got to trade it back out again in order to be able to buy things in Rome. We are not a nation anymore. Now, you can understand that there were people who legitimately were frustrated. They legitimately wanted deliverance. They wanted restoration of their rights as a Jewish nation again, and they were willing to use violence if necessary. The ultimate liberation theology on display in a way that folks felt very justified. So Barabbas was, this, was a part of this group, a part of the zealots. It's very likely that he and his group, some people think that maybe the thieves on the cross that were next to Jesus may have been a part of the same crew as Barabbas, right? Because Jesus gets convicted, he gets put on the cross. Who's he next to? He would have been next to the same people Barabbas would have been next to if he didn't take his place. So it's likely this was the crew. What we learn about the zealots is they would go in and they would just start ransacking people's homes and they would steal things and they would take things because in their mind, this is our kingdom anyway. Y'all just waiting for it to happen. This is just our kingdom. You'll see in a little bit. The Messiah is coming and is going to validate everything we're doing right now. So here we have Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas, a patriotic rebel, like a Jewish Paul Revere focused on change through self-redemption and not redemption through the coming Messiah. Scripture refers to him also as an insurrectionist. Not touching nothing else. Uses the Greek word, the same Greek word that actually means one who rises up against the authority and institutions. For one person, he may have been a seditionist or possibly even a terrorist, but we all know that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So it's so easy to look at Barabbas and throw it away, but hopefully you understand to many, Barabbas is this revolutionary hero fighting for Jewish civil rights, seeking better treatment and independence from the Roman Empire. And you know what he did not want? He did not want to wait for a Messiah to deliver the Jewish people in any other way other than militarily with force, freedom from the tyrannical Roman Empire. He wanted to free his people from the yoke of Rome through political and violent means. A coup d'etat, taking over by any means necessary. And then he and his crew were caught, tried, convicted, and condemned to the harshest penalty known at that time, crucifixion. That's Barabbas. And y'all, we can look at this easily and be like, man, you know, it it can be so easy for us to stop and go, man, I don't know what those folks were thinking. I can't believe they would exchange Christ for a common criminal. And, And we sit back and we view them in a way that implies that we would not have done the same thing. But I hate to break this to you, we likely would have. And frankly, we still do. We still have this idea of the Messiah that we want, and that's the one we want instead of Jesus. The Jewish crowd in this story represents the question every one of us has to ask daily. Which Jesus do I really want? Listen. Listen and see if this sounds anything like you. The crowd wanted a customized Jesus. They customized their Messiah to fit their desire for political change. 
They customized their Messiah to fit their desire for self-redemption. They wanted fair representation, economic and political freedom, restoration of their rightful place among the nations. They wanted their rights fought for. And the G- Jesus the Christ did not fit in with what they believed to be their greatest need. Jesus Barabbas did. So this begs the question, what do you believe to be your greatest need? Look, none of the things we talked about are not unimportant. Please don't hear me say that a desire for certain things and freedom and independence and issues of injustice are not important. Those things are, we could talk about that on another sermon. There's a lot there. Those things are vitally important, but you still have to answer this question. What do I still view to be my greatest need? Why is that important? Because whatever you believe to be your greatest need will determine the Jesus you want. Whatever you think you need most, that's the Messiah you'll run after. Whatever you believe to be your greatest need will determine which attributes of Jesus you will emphasize at the expense of others. That's just how it works. The problem here is we so often misidentify our greatest need. And then we overemphasize certain attributes of Jesus at the expense of others. And in in so doing, we carve out the Jesus that we want based on that. Sometimes they're based on real biblical attributes of Christ. And then we misidentify our greatest need and we highlight an attribute of Christ and we ignore some of the more equally important attributes. If I think, for example, if I think that my greatest need is comfort, well, Jesus is a comforter. I will emphasize Jesus as comforter above all attributes like holiness and find myself entangled in sins or sinful relationships that help satisfy my desire for comfort. Jesus will understand, right? Because he's a comforter. Do you see this? If I want Jesus to be, uh, if, if I think my greatest need is relationships, then I emphasize relationships at the expense of lovingly encouraging one another to hate and battle our personal sin to hate and battle corporate sins of injustice. Well, God is about relationships. So if God is about relationships, I'll just value the relationship even if it means that I'll live in such a way where I no longer bear the image of the the redeemed uh, Savior, the Savior that redeems me. I won't bear that image any longer because relationships matter so much. I like theology. I like studying God's word up until it gets in the way of relationships. Now, hear me out. We're not talking about abusive theology or ways in which people use theology as a convenient way to not love one another. That's, again, a different sermon. But when there are specific things in the text that says, this is my heart, bear this out, and you're like, I don't really want to bear that out because I might mess up my relationship here. You've exalted the relationship piece of God above his holiness. You have remade Jesus, not into Jesus the Christ, but another Jesus Barabbas. So now, so now you, you have to stop and go, man, if, 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 if it, one of the things that bothers me so much, there's a famous quote that people love to attribute to St. Francis of Assisi, and, and there's a phrase that people love to quote all the time, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. That sounds really cute. Sounds really pithy. I quoted it growing up. I remember, like, oh, man, that just me. Y'all, this is a part of, listen, by the way, We should find ourselves constantly, if you're growing in Christ, whatever you thought 10 years ago, some of that should change. If you're really growing, if you think the same things you thought at 13, you're probably doing it wrong. 
So all of us should find some, I feel a degree of shame and conviction because I would quote these things. Why? Because I'm trying, they're all in good, right? They're coming out of a good place. I want to make sure that people don't think that I'm trying to beat them over the head with, with like dead mechanical religion. And so I'm trying to be able to show the love of Christ and embody the love of Christ. And that's important. That's vitally important. Number one, St. Francis never said this. It's just a quote that somehow got appended to him over time. You'll never find anywhere in any writing anywhere where he said anything like this. Why? Well, the scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You cannot, I can celebrate with you a number of things without having to necessarily say who Jesus is. That's true. But in relationships, our, our, our relationships have to move from celebration to courageous conversations. And those conversations, you, you have to make Jesus the unavoidable issue in some form or fashion. So you can't, you can't like have this whole, but again, the way you land there is, well, <clears throat> if I want this and I want this to feel a little bit safe or what have you, then I'll just ignore this other aspect that God requires me to if it's true of my heart and my life. Let me make it even more personal, even for me. If I think that my greatest need is my healing, then I look to Jesus to be a healer because I know the word says he's a healer, but I look to him to be a healer at the expense of his other attributes of sovereignly working all things to bring maximum glory to himself. So if he chooses not to heal, I begin to question his goodness. Seriously. You ever been in that situation? Somebody that you love or yourself or some situation that's happening and you're like, God, to me, it just seems like, it's just like, man, if I were God, I would know this is the best thing. It's weird. Like, God hears you, but he doesn't actually bend his will to yours. So you're just like, man, I, I feel like that this should be the thing, so I'm going to pray because God is a healer. And I know that God knows this is good, so he'll do it. And then when he doesn't do it, where are we going? God, what happened? Where are you? God, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can depend on you. Why? Because you did not meet that expectation. Any kind of relationship you've been in, family, friends, romantic relationships, here's the thing we know. Unmet expectations always engender current and future resentment. Always. So something's wrong there because somehow when you're in a relationship, somebody may have, you haven't communicated an expectation. You just think they know it. And so they don't meet it. And then you're like, yo, I thought you knew what was up. You knew that that was the thing. So since you knew it and you didn't do it, you must not love me. But wait, I didn't, you, you didn't give me that. Listen, love you, bro, but you know. <laughs> this is us. This is all of us. So, so we do this with God. Why? Because I thought since I know you're a healer, I should be able to expect you to heal every time. Well, who said that? God didn't say that. God said, in all, in all things, I'm bringing glory to myself. Now, praise God, there are times, and we pray, we can boldly pray, Lord, I really want healing, and I'm praying for healing because I know you can do it. But because you can do it does not mean you are beholden to have to do it, which is hard. That's not easy. It's easy to say. It's super nice and holy to be like, I just want God's will in my life, but just wait until God's will doesn't match with yours. This was my case. About nine years ago, this past May, got an opportunity to go on this incredible trip to Israel. While there, was, I mean, amazing. I mean, we had gone... It was about a year before we were getting ready to get the church off the ground, and I had moved here from Chicago, start raising money, gathering folks, getting a core team, all the things that you do when you're planting a church, and uh, had gotten this opportunity to go off to Israel. It's about a three-week trip, and, and I get off, and I go, and I remember while I was there, as soon as I landed, I call home, and I find out that my mother is in the hospital. 
She had gone in for a basic routine elective surgery. Wasn't supposed to be anything major. She had had other medical issues, but there were things she was living with, and, and we just knew she was going to have to kind of figure that part out, but it wasn't anything fatal. And so I'm in Israel, and, and, and the, for the, almost the entire time that I was there, I said three weeks, it was 10, 10 days, sorry, for, for the 10 days that I was there, from the time that I got there, I'm getting updates and updates and updates, and people are telling me what's happening, and I'm calling my wife, and I'm calling family members, and I'm calling my brothers, and trying to figure out what's going on, and things are looking up, then things are going down, then things are looking up, and then things are going down. And I remember getting our little tour team, the people on the tour bus, and they all were praying, and we all were praying. I remember being in the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping, crying, crying out, praying that God would just save my mother. That's reasonable. Like any of us, I believe, would have done this. I'm not special. This is just what you do. You love someone, and you're like, Lord, just, just spare my mother. This is such a freak accident. This shouldn't be happening, these things internally. Lord, just touch her, hold her. We're all praying and we're believing God and holding on to all those things. And on the 10th day of my trip, when I was supposed to fly back, that morning, I get a phone call in my hotel in Tel Aviv that my mom had passed away, 54 years old, young. And I remember feeling a lot of the things I think a lot of us would be feeling. I mean, I can't begin to tell you all the thoughts that were racing through my mind, but I think you would understand every one of them. But I can tell you this, that the temptation to question God or to doubt God was most certainly there. I know it's not cool for pastors to say we doubt God sometimes or we question or our faith is shaken, but let me just be the only one to tell you a lot of us really do go there. We just don't know that we can tell y'all because we're supposed to look so tough and strong all the time. And so we struggle by ourselves when we do that. That's not healthy. But the truth of the matter is there are things that happen for all of us that make you go, wait a minute, God, wait. Now, I thought that this is who you were here. And yet I'm looking at evidence that tells me that maybe you're not. Like, what, what do I do? What did that mean? I wanted God to be a healer more than I wanted him to be sovereign and in control of everything. And that's not easy to say and it's not easy to feel, but it's the only thing I'm left with. I, I, I get to this place where I'm so broken and I'm angry. It's okay to be hurt and broken. I'm angry because in my mind, something else should have happened. You should have been more of a healer than being sovereign there, God. I don't understand all your sovereign will. I don't know why you do what you do, but I'm angry because I think that my mom being alive should have been in your sovereign will, and it's not. I want him to be a healer more than I want him to be sovereign. I didn't want Jesus in that moment. I wanted my own Barabbas, y'all. Like, it's understandable. Like, this is not a foreign thing. There's certain, some things about Jesus I just want more than others. And so any of us, when we exalt any attribute of Christ at the expense of another, we begin to customize Jesus from being the Christ to being Jesus Barabbas. Look back at the Jews in this story. The things they wanted, like I said, they weren't bad. They weren't bad. They weren't horrible, sinful things. They, they, they were things that are understandable. Freedom, justice, victory, those, those aren't necessarily bad things. They just wanted someone who promised those things, who spoke like they spoke, who felt like they felt, who looked like them, who met their greatest needs the way they wanted it. So we see who Barabbas is and we see that we want Barabbas, but here's the other thing. You don't, all, all, you don't only just want Barabbas. 
in many ways, you and I, we are Barabbas. Why? Because the Jesus that you want becomes the Jesus that you imitate. The Jesus that you want becomes the Jesus that you imitate. Our sin nature orients us towards ourselves. This means that we like the things that remind us of ourselves. We like being around people that remind us of ourselves. There was an old wide receiver, one of the great wide receivers, Terrell Owens, had a saying. He would say, I love me some me. I love being around you because there are things about you that remind me of things about me. I like feeling better about me. Again, there's nothing wrong with organizing our groups around affinity and all of that. That's fine. But you got to be really careful because some of those echo chambers are just ways for you to worship yourself. And so (laughs) I am Barabbas in that way because I start imitating the one that reminds me of myself. I, I like people who think like me, talk like me, even look like me. I love me some me. I'm a self-worshipper. I love people who help me remind me of myself. And we do this with Jesus the same way the Jews did with Barabbas. We highlight things about Jesus that resonate with us and ignore the rest. So what does this look like? Well, if my greatest affections are engaged by my politics, then I create a Jesus Barabbas that's either a Republican or a Democrat image. If my greatest affections are engaged by my ethnicity, then I create a black, white, Hispanic, or Asian Jesus. If, if my greatest affections are engaged by my schooling choice, then I create a homeschooling, private Christian schooling, public schooling, Barabbas. We want a savior to look like us, so we hijack certain attributes and we make those exclusive. And when we custom fit Jesus to look like us, we don't look like him. We just look like a cheap counterfeit, just like Barabbas. But that's not the end of the story. I don't want you thinking, all right, well, then at the end of the day, I've got to figure out how to stop looking like Barabbas. It's important to identify areas of our Barabbic heart. I know I made up a word, but a Barabbic heart. There may be areas there that we need to identify, and that's important, but we're not left in shame there. We're not left going, let me create a checklist for all the ways that I can stop looking like Barabbas. Let me just, then if I can just adhere to that checklist long enough, then I'll be on the right side. You're going to create another Barabbas yourself because it's going to be who's the best rule follower. So what do we do? Don't get me wrong. I, I, I hope that we're convicted. I hope we see areas where we fall short. But the answer does not begin with work harder. That will be a death sentence. And you know why? Because every one of us came into this world longing for and looking like Barabbas. We all came in here, we, we searched for a savior like Barabbas to meet what we think our greatest needs are. But again, here's the thing that's interesting, and this is what I think God wants us to see. Barabbas was on trial because he was insufficient to save himself. He couldn't save himself. You realize that honestly, Barabbas is the only man, the only man that can say, Jesus literally died in my place. Like we all can say it, no question, right? We all get to be connected to the incredible work of death and resurrection of Jesus, and we love that. But the only one who can literally say, Jesus died in my place, is Barabbas. What that says is, I was not sufficient to save myself. Why are y'all looking to me to be your savior? I needed a savior. We, when we do this and we miss this, We don't realize that ultimately we don't have to sit in a place where we're like, man, i got to figure out how to save myself because because I I can't do it and I don't know where to go. Jesus Christ took Barabbas' place and he took your place. Your false Messiah cannot save you. Our politics can't save us. 
for America, our, our pride on any level, all important things that have their place, but they cannot save you or your people. Your cultural preferences will not save you. Anything outside of being holistically reconciled to God through the real Jesus will fail you every time. And you can't work harder to fix this problem because we are fundamentally flawed from the beginning. We need something outside of ourselves to save us, just like Barabbas did. In other words, the father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. That says is God loves us so much that he didn't wait for us. He didn't wait for you to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. What the real gospel says is we were born without boots. Romans 5 says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Jesus died in Barabbas' place. Jesus died in our place. Why did he die? To meet our actual greatest need. There are a lot of things that I need. Don't get me wrong. There's tons of things that I need. And in my growth and in my sanctification and in my rhythms of faith and repentance and in my rhythms of of lament and praise and worship and connection, all of those things, there's a lot of needs that are there. But my greatest need is not necessarily to be healed from the emotional scars, from suffering, from horrific forms of abuse growing up. It's a need, and it's something that needs to be worked on. It's not my greatest need. My greatest need isn't for healing the scars of witnessing my mother rapidly degrade in part because of horrific physical abuse she suffered. There's a need, but that's not actually my greatest need. Since you and I were born in a sin, born looking like Barabbas and born condemned to eternal death and separation, our greatest need still is to be remade to look like the actual Christ. Because all those other things do get influenced by that. How that, what that process looks like in all the other areas of healing gets influenced by us being reconciled to a holy God through the actual, real, authentic Jesus Christ. This is what sanctification and glorification is about. It only happens when we're justified and reconciled to Christ. This is why Romans 8 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know what this means. Our greatest need then is that we need to be changed. Please hear this. Say this to yourself. I need to be changed. I need to be changed. Why do I have to repeat this? Because, and I know this because this has been true for me too. You know what's cool to say about in relationships and when we're meeting people and there's issues that come up? Real love doesn't seek to change me. I shouldn't have to change for anybody. I should just be my authentic self. Well, who told you your authentic self was perfectly sanctified in the way that God meant for you to be? Oh, so, so you're beyond sanctification now. No, real love changes. The, the, the actual Jesus of Nazareth is here to change you. So when you are in relationships and certain things start to come out, listen, your sinful habits are going to come out. Things that you started saying is just my authentic personality. You just got to be able to accept me for who I am. No, 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 no. You can't just be content with, well, this is just who I am. Yes, there are aspects of ourselves that's there. I love when we say, well, this is just how I'm wired. Where Jesus came to rewire you. There's something about your circuit board that's off. So get out of this again. Well, no, my Jesus tells me that love doesn't change anything. He just loves me as I am. He does, but as I said at the beginning, he loves you too much to leave you that way. He's here to change us. 
God's perfect love says, I know that you were born without the ability to look like me on your own, and I love you enough to see how far away from me you are, and I love you enough to change you and bring you close to me forever. We keep saying, I just want to be with you. We don't sing, I want you to change me. I just want to be with you in all of the ways that I already exist, and that's it. But but the moment I'm with you long enough that I have to start changing, I need to go be with somebody else. Which Jesus do you want, though? Honestly, which Jesus are we longing for? Which Jesus are you clinging to today? Because we all have a Jesus Barabbas somewhere that is competing for our affections for Christ. And sometimes they aren't necessarily bad or sinful things. One preacher put it this way. He said, he said if you go to heaven and all of the relationships that you have lost on this earth but you long for seeing again when you get to heaven. But you get there and none of those relationships are there. Do you still want to be there? Honestly. Think about the things. Man, I lost my mom. I lost this person. I lost that person. I love this person. That was my homie. That was my dude. We, I I know I can't see them there, but I know I'll see them again. Is that the thing that makes you long for heaven most? Because you still may not want Jesus, the authentic Jesus. There's something else that you want. You want the Jesus that can restore lost family relationships. So ask yourself that question. If I get there and they're not there, do I still want to be here? See, this is the relationship with Jesus that he's come to create with us. It's crucial. It's a crucial and pivotal moment when you transition from believing in the Jesus you wish existed to believing in the real Jesus who meets our greatest needs. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.